we'll continue our, our Advent series exploring the, uh, the five women in Matthew's genealogy. And, and so uh, uh, I'll read our passage comes from Joshua 2 uh, about Rahab. This is Joshua 2, verse 4. But the woman had taken two men and hidden them. Then she said, Of course the men came to me, but I didn't know where they came from. The men left when it was time to close the gate at dark, but I don't know where those men went. Hurry, chase after them. You might catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the flax stalks that she had laid out on the roof. The men from Jericho chased after them in the direction of the Jordan up to the fords. And as soon as those chasing them went out, the gate was shut behind them. Before the spies bedded down, Rahab went up to to them on the roof. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Terror over you has overwhelmed us. The entire population of the land has melted down in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Reed Sea in front of you when you left Egypt. We've also heard what you did in Sion and Og, the two the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan, you utterly wiped them out. We heard this and our hearts turned to water. Because of you, people can no longer work up their courage. This is because the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now I have been loyal to you. So pledge to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal loyally with my family. Give me a sign of good faith. Spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, and sisters, along with everything they own, rescue us from death. The men said to her, we swear by our own lives to secure yours. If you don't reveal our mission, we will deal loyally and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. So she lowered the spies on a rope through the window. Her house was on the outer side of the city wall, and she lived inside the wall. Then she said to them, go towards the highlands, that those chasing you don't run into you. Hide there for three days until those chasing you return, then you will go along your way. The men said to her, we won't be responsible for this pledge you made. Uh, We won't be responsible for this pledge you made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this red woven cord to the window through which you lowered us. Gather your father, your mother, your brothers, and your whole family in the house with you. Those who go outside the doors of your house into the streets will have only themselves to blame for their own deaths. We won't be responsible. If anyone lays a hand on those who are with you in this house, we will take the blame for their death. But if you reveal our mission, we won't be responsible for this pledge you made us swear. She said, these things will happen just like you said. She sent them away, and they went off, and then she tied a red cord in the window. The word of the Lord. Uh, Let me pray. Father, we thank you for these stories, um, these these Bible stories that, uh, as your people, we claim uh, to be our stories. Um, Lord, uh, Give us insight and wisdom uh, to, to read these stories well and, and give us 
tenderness and vulnerability um, in order to uh, read these stories into our lives. Um, Lord, with your spirit, challenge us and change us by your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we explored Tamar's story, and, and after we read that story, uh, I just said, whoa. <laughs> and, and, and several people came up and said, that is the best exegesis you've ever done from the pulpit. It's just saying, whoa, and realizing uh, how hard of a story that is, and, and how strange it, it might have struck many of us to, to come during this sweet time of fellowship as we prepare for Christmas. But is that... As random as that story might seem, as random as starting a story off from like the late part of Genesis and a little recap, uh, if you don't remember that story, it's about a messed up family featuring a twice widowed woman who tricks her father-in-law into getting her pregnant. <laughs> it's not really random at all though. It's part of Jesus's family tree is what Matthew reminds us. So much part of it that Matthew records these names and he doesn't shy away from these names. Biblical historians tend to agree that these names just even showing up mean that the biblical authors are telling the truth because the truth is often stranger than fiction. If someone wanted to make up these things about, make up something about Jesus, they, we, we think those stories would probably be a whole lot tidier a whole lot easier to explain than including women like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary. These stories at their best are, are just stories of people who weren't all that important in an ancient Near Eastern patriarchal culture, but at their worst are disreputable or like sketchy. So whenever you start reading the Gospels, particularly Matthew and Luke with their genealogies, and when you're tempted to, to skip and to skim over names because well, we just get bored at the beginning of those things, slow down. Use this season of preparation to slow down and to read those names. Don't go on until you remember each story. And if you have to go back to remember them, go back. Just put a bookmark in and go back to those stories. And if you don't know those stories, read them for the first time. They're worth the read. Sure, some of the stories of some of these names are more obvious or more memorable than others. Not every story is going to even be that long when you go back, or frankly, all that edifying. Like, you're not going to really understand what it means. But try to be on the lookout when you read these stories for how God is working in their lives. Like, that's one of the threads that holds all these people together. That before they were enshrined as Bible characters, before people named their kids after them for one reason or another, they were just people. They were just people for whom God showed up. They were just people. They were just people for maybe for whom God was always there and they just had enough attention to, to understand that and to act even semi-appropriately, Right? Each name, even the infamous ones, are embedded into this big story of God speaking and working in, sometimes working with, sometimes working in spite of 
working for people whose lives are marked with imperfections, with sin and disobedience. Some of these people for whom their life of faith, their faith was the only lifeline they had, the only source of courage they could muster. So we move down this list today, and we stumble onto Rahab. It says in Matthew 1, 5 through 6, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. But notice in that just little cluster, all those like really like attractive names that we want to just skip towards. Like there's that name Boaz, and for my really sweet, wonderful Christian mother-in-law, Boaz is is a major name. Like any single Christian woman she knows just needs to find her Boaz, you know? Um, there's also Ruth is in there, uh, and Ruth is another family favorite. Like the first or middle name of almost every woman in my wife's family is Ruth. Like her, her grandma, her mom, uh, her sister's first name is Ruth. Emmett's middle name is Ruth. So we have these great, and of course David. Like we spent all summer studying David. Like we're tempted to, to jump into these really appealing names. It's easy to pass over Rahab. But Matthew makes plenty of space for her. Matthew makes us stub our toe on her as we try to run by to, ease, to more easily explainable stories. Matthew makes us scratch our heads at why Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, why she got in the story. Is this all just an elaborate plan for God to show how well he uses crooked sticks to make straight lines? Do you know that saying? You know that? (laughs) Perhaps just Rahab's presence, just on the surface of things, is a reminder for us not to pass by people who we have a hard time categorizing or explaining, just in our regular lives. It's so much easier to to find an in-group who looks like us or thinks like us or who or even an out-group, which we can easily explain, but those complicated people somewhere in the middle, it's, e- it's easy to get away from them because we don't know how to handle them. And then in the story, I think there's two main things going on in this story, this story that comes to us from, from Joshua 2, and then later on in Joshua 6 is kind of the culmination where, where uh, Rahab makes good on her side of the deal, and those spies make good on their side of the deal, all of Jericho is laying waste uh, except for Rahab and the people in Rahab's home. So I think one of the main things in this story, though, that, that brings Rahab into God's story of redemption has to do with her willingness to be hospitable. In fact, I think it's easy to say that maybe it's only Rahab's hospitality that is notable about her. Before she positions herself in between the king's men and Joshua's spies, the ones scoping out Jericho so they could conquer it as, uh, as a part of God's people's inheritance, before that she was an anonymous sex worker. <laughs> Probably not someone who would really volunteer too easily to, to get involved in a manhunt 
or looking to like stand up to the king or really, I, I can't really imagine how much she would have to gain in taking in a foreign enemy, hiding them on a roof. But she did anyways. Maybe it was a, a desperate play for survival, but she did anyways. She made room for them in a life that didn't have a whole lot of room. She ran interference for these spies and created just enough space for these men under these bushels of, of like drying um, uh, bundles. She made enough space for them. These men were probably also her clients, like when it says they bed down with her. Careful there. Um, but she made enough room for these men to slide under the radar and to keep their lives. Well before this story that we detailed, the story of a travel-weary, bedraggled, very pregnant Mary knocking on an innkeeper's door with Jesus in her belly hoping for some rest and relief. Rahab, a Gentile woman who made her livelihood on infidelity, she was the one providing hospitality. That's maybe how the math of hospitality works. It blurs the host and the recipient, and it surprises us with who's going to play which role. Henry Nouwen describes this as the paradox of hospitality, that somehow hospitality wants to create an emptiness, but not a fearful emptiness, a friendly emptiness where strangers can enter and discover themselves as created free to turn a phrase from the Apostle Paul, to set people free for freedom. I'm reminded of another story, a a contemporary story from from a local ministry just down the road in Walltown. Some of you guys live in Walltown, called the Rupa House. Their mission is to provide this sort of space for surprising friendships to be possible. Um, They got their name, though, uh, their genesis story was, was when their founder, uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, he was on a 2003 peacemaking trip to Iraq, and right in the middle of that was, was when all the shock and awe bombing started to happen, and they had to get out of there. So they, they loaded up in Jeeps and, and were headed towards Amman, Jordan, through the desert, and along the way they, they blew a tire, and, and like when you're not really driving on roads, blowing a tire is pretty unsafe and one of the guys had this huge gash in his head and they they needed to seek immediate medical attention so they got to one of the local villages the nearest village was was Arupa and uh and they sought aid which which would have been would have been okay not the best thing to be an American in Iraq when Americans are bombing Iraq but they were relying on this Middle Eastern hospitality it would have been okay and he would have gotten appropriate medical care had their only hospital in their village not been bombed three days prior. <laughs> but, but they go anyways, and, and they're, they're shuttled to, to kind of this makeshift triage clinic uh, with a hand-painted sign uh, for the entire village. And when they get there, um, they're, they're pledged, you are safe in Rutba. You are safe in Rutba is what all of these Brown-skinned men in the desert are telling all these white people, you are safe in Rupa. 
While American bombs continued to rain down around them, the village stitched up the wounded man, and they, people, just random stranger villagers, started bringing them water and bringing them blankets. They, the Americans do what good Americans do, and they offer to like pay it back because we don't want to be in debt to people. And, and they refused over and over, and, and they said, your payment, just go and tell the world about Rupa. Go and tell them about Rupa. What I take from both Rupa and Rahab is the sort of beginning that hospitality creates. For Rupa, it was the beginning of several lives living in an intentional Christian community devoted to figuring out how to go and tell the world about Rupa. And they, they decided to do that just by bedding down in this little corner of Durham in not refusing people that come to them. By offering a place of hope and healing and hospitality to others. For Rahab, though, it was, it was less of a beginning and more of a continuation. A continuation of God's surprising story of changing lives through lives. Of using the least, the last, the lost, the littlest, the, the, those who are close to death, to open up possibilities to show the world what salvation looks like. The other thing that I can't shake, I think the other important thing in this story is that red thread hanging from her window as a sign of her future deliverance. That rope, she throws out a rope for them to climb down, and somehow that rope for the spies' escape then gets converted into just this, this small crimson cord. It's a little twine that we could imagine of all the windows of this village close to the wall. <laughs> it wouldn't have been all that conspicuous, right? Unless you were looking for it. And if you were looking for it, it would signal and mark her place. This little red mark would save her life when the siege was on. It would, it would cause her to be passed over as Joshua's conquering army mercilessly cut Jericho to the ground. This is the same ironic crimson cord that ran from the Exodus, freeing God's people from the plague that would take so many lives in that Egyptian exile. God's people would eat bitter herbs and unleavened bread because they'd be on the run. They'd mark their doorposts with the of each of their homes with the blood of the lamb so that that angel of death would pass over them and not cut them down to the ground. And then they would be delivered from this oppressive, dehumanizing power of Pharaoh, of empire, the, the kind of power that looks at people for what they can do, not who they are. Pharaoh, Pharaoh just wanted more bricks, just wanted more bricks, wanted them to produce didn't see the dignity inherent in there being images of God. This red thread then runs through all of God's people's story, jagging in and out of the tapestry that we read in Matthew's genealogy. And it runs all the way to and through Jesus, who's knit by this thread when he's born into Herod's sanctioned genocide, when they're trying to root out male babies who might become the true king. Herod gets really nervous when the true king is on the horizon. 
the Lord speaks to Joseph in a dream. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, and tells him, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod will soon search for the child in order to kill him. This fulfilled the prophet's words, I have called my son out of Egypt. It's this strand, this little thread, that Jesus grabs a hold of and pulls throughout his life. Pulls into that final week of his earthly life as an adult and gathers around a Passover Seder dinner with his disciples to remember God's deliverance of his people and then to, to put that imagery onto this bread and onto this cup as he would take the cross. It's this red thread then that I think Jesus ties off as he remembers his own body and his own blood on the cross. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think this thread shows us that that both Rahab and, and Rutba, but, but also us in Christ, we, we do these redemptive things because God has done the redemptive thing for us. We offer people redemption because we've been redeemed. Rahab saves because God saved his people in Egypt. Rutba offers hospitality because they had been offered hospitality. We offer hospitality. We preach salvation because we've received hospitality. That's why we go from this table to those tables, because those tables are made possible by this table. That is the thread running through it all. And if that thread runs through all of that, if that thread runs through us, I think it, it might call for kind of a renaming campaign <laughs> for Rahab. Because we, we know how that feels. We know what it's like um, and what it would be like if we were constantly referred to as Chris the sinner, <laughs> as, as, as Nate the sinner, as Rachel the sinner. Rahab the prostitute, <laughs> known e even in Hebrews, like that Hebrews 11 hall of fame, hall of faith, it calls her uh, Rahab the prostitute, who wasn't killed because she welcomed the spies in peace. Notice that word, peace, that word of the week. But maybe, maybe in light of all this, maybe in light of this thread that she came from and this thread that goes forward to Jesus, maybe we can rename her. Maybe she becomes then Rahab the hospitable. Even later in Joshua, we find that only Jericho, the only Jericho residents that survive were those packed into her house. Maybe she becomes Rahab the rescuer. Rahab who held the thread of God's saving work, whose hospitality became the sanctuary, the marked out spot for others to be delivered. Maybe she becomes, like each of us, Rahab who is loved by God. Rahab who has seen, Rahab who has heard, Rahab who has known and understood. The one who Jesus, our Emmanuel, is with, you can insert your name here. The one who Jesus, our advocate, is for. The one who has been rescued, one who rescues. 
Maybe if we're in Christ and he's our savior, if he's our elder brother, then we're grafted into this family tree and Rahab becomes our great grandma. Have you ever considered that? That we live into this long and winding story and this this story continues as so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. Continues in this legacy of generous and risky hospitality. That, That we know that our salvation begets more salvation for others that come in contact with us as we, as we show Christ, as we tell the world about Jesus. And just Maybe that's easier to do sometimes with, with telling the world about Rutba, but I think the same logic holds as we encounter Jesus, we tell the world about this salvation. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for these stories that challenge us. Uh, Challenge us because of who's in them, but challenge us because um, we don't have any excuses. (laughs) We're not excluded from your story. Help Help us be ready. Help us be ready to respond to your salvation by offering salvation to others. Give us words. You you have a great history of sending your people the, the, the word they need at the moment they need it for the hope that's within them. Lord, give us resources, uh, whether that's time or money or emotional bandwidth. Give us exactly what we need. Give us more than we need when we encounter someone in need. And Lord, uh, before all that, just flood us with your grace and your love in your mercy, so that we might experience your salvation and, and live into that abundant eternal life even now. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.